and welcome to the TID Water and Power Podcast. I'm your host, Constance Anderson, and on this month's episode, we're discussing wildfires and TID's wildfire mitigation efforts. Californians are no strangers to wildfires, but wildfire season, which typically runs July through October, has increased in duration and severity in recent years. And utilities are under more scrutiny for the roles they have played in past wildfires. TID is taking calculated, proactive measures to protect our service area from fire risk. On this episode, I'm joined by TID Assistant General Manager, Electrical Engineering and Operations, Munjok Gill, to talk about wildfire risks in TID's service area and what efforts the district is taking to mitigate that risk for our community. Thanks for being with us, Munjok. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about your current role at the district as an AGM and uh, how you got into that position? Yeah. Uh, so currently, as, as you mentioned, Assistant General Manager of Engineering and Operations. Um, my team is responsible for our engineering, planning, and maintaining and operating our, our grid. Uh, that's kind of the main focus of, of our group um, at TID. Great. And how, uh, how, what led to your becoming AGM? Yeah, so I started here at the district in 2006 as an engineer and uh, really progressed in, in the area of uh, line engineering and uh, found some roles as a department manager and then transitioned into an AGM in 2017. Okay, and so in your current role then, you have been responsible for overseeing TID's mitig- uh, wildfire mitigation efforts. Is that right? Absolutely. So that's uh, something that we've uh, taken very uh, serious about is ensuring that our wildfire mitigation plans are in effect. And also we've uh, been having some standards and constructions that we've been doing for many years. And now it, this memorializes uh, what we've been doing for, for a long time. So typically when our customers think about TID's service area, in relation to wildfires, I don't think that's much of a concern for most people because they, they don't realize necessarily the areas of higher concern and the fact that we do have a couple of those high concern areas in our territory. Is that right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So um, generally, the way how we have it, I mean, as you all are aware, our service territory is 676 square miles and and majority of our, of our customers are not really impacted by wildfire mitigation or wildfire uh, issues that we uh, have to contend with. However, uh, we have our tips of our territory that, that are impacted. So that's our east side uh, f- fire zones that we've established, uh, which is essentially east of Lake Road, and then our, our west side, which is west of I-5. Uh, those are the two areas that uh, are impacted by wildfires and any mitigation measures that we have to implement. And if you had to kind of define those areas by communities, um, the east side would include... Um, yes. Yeah, as for customers, east side is about 260 customers. Uh, and then we go in the west, it's about uh, 721. So, yeah. So in regards to total customers impacted in the, in the wildfires is about less than about a thousand. Okay. And then west of um, I-5, we're kind of talking about the communities of Diablo Grande and... Um, Adobe Springs. Adobe Springs. Yeah. Thank you. And then east of Lake Road... That would be the communities of LaGrange and... Yeah, it's LaGrange going all the way to the tip of our service territory. Very good. Okay. That kind of helps give folks a little perspective about the the geographical areas that that we're going to be talking about today. Absolutely. Okay. So now that we've identified kind of these two geographical areas that are of elevated risk, 
Uh, what type of characteristics are there in each of these areas that that uh, qualify them as such? Yeah, in our service, Tori, it really pertains to the type of fuel. And so that's, you know, grasslands and we have rolling hills in, in those respective areas. And on the east side, we have some riparian uh, that we have to ad- address and contend with. Uh, that's what really kind of defines what we're really focused with uh, in those areas. Okay. And then I understand that... Um, you know, we have certain weather conditions that present that kind of create um, an increased risk. Uh, and really, it's it's the combination of certain circumstances that that increase the risk. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what some of those those weather related circumstances might be? Yeah. So temperature is one of the big ones. Uh, high winds. That's the one of the big key is ensuring that high winds are something that we have to monitor and and ensure that we have uh, the ability to address those high wind conditions. Uh, humidity is another one, right? If it's low humidity, that's it's prime for uh, ignition. So uh, those are kind of the three key areas that really focus on. But the biggest one is high winds. Okay. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, the total number of customers that we're talking about is less than a thousand. So it's a it's a relatively small portion of TID's total customer base. Um, but as we know, the, the fire season has been getting longer. The fire wildfires themselves have been growing in severity, and so it is. It does remain a, a top concern for TID, even though the the number of customers potentially affected is uh, is a smaller portion. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to uh, our our responsibility as a utility to ensure that uh, we don't cause any any wildfires in our territory or or anything that would even expand our territory. So we we do take uh, a lot of pride in ensuring that uh, we can meet the standards and address everything in appropriate fashion. Okay, so our last classification then of of these two areas, um, there they can be called a state responsibility area or SRA. Or they can be classified as a high fire threat district or both. Can you tell us where those two classifications come from? Yes, as you mentioned, there's there's two areas. There's the SRA, which is Cal Fire. And the other one is uh, the high threat, threat zones uh, d- identified by the CPUC. Uh, both have two different set criterias uh, of how they follow through in their severity uh, of, of addressing fires. Uh, one has in, in regards to equipment they can utilize. One actually expands uh, the wildfire zoning. So what we've done is we've taken the standards, uh, both of those standards, and put together one stringent standard that addresses both areas. Uh, we've actually expanded our territory uh, to accommodate both SRA and CPUC uh, wildfire threat zones tier two. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we took the most stringent approach to ensure that we were diligent in addressing any wildfire mitigation needs uh, in those respective areas. Okay. So just to recap that, we've got the state responsibility area as identified by CAL FIRE. We've got the high fire threat district as identified by CPUC, which is California Public Utilities Commission. That's correct. That's correct. And they have identified an area, but then TID has actually chosen a larger area that we've included in our wildfire mitigation plans just to make sure we are all encompassing of the potential threat area. Yeah, we would we really want to take a conservative approach to that, uh, assuring that we have the right equipment in the right areas. And so encompassing both was was one of the, a challenge for us, but we wanted to ensure that we did, did the most 
appropriate thing. So uh, expanding our territory did allow us to do more in those areas, but uh, we, we felt that it was the most uh, practical item for us to do the best business practices to ensure uh, we, we address those fire areas. Great. Meeting and exceeding what either Cal Fire or the CPUC would require of That's us. That's correct. Awesome. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the the geography. Let's talk about um, some of TID's specific assets in each of those areas. Um, what do we have in in those areas with regard to transmission and, and distribution equipment? Yeah, primarily uh, the equipment that we have in these ter- in these areas. It's mainly overhead equipment, so overhead distribution lines, overhead transmission lines. Uh, in the west side, we've got about seventy seven miles of overhead conductor, um, and then. Uh, approximately 18 miles of underground. And that's in those respect, respective areas there. Um, and then we move to the east side. East side is about uh, 34 miles of overhead distribution wire. Uh, we do have uh, a set of transmission also, and that's about 61 miles of transmission. All right. Okay, so let's back up for a minute before we get into the the current wildfire mitigation plan. Let's talk about what... TID's uh, past efforts have been in the way of mitigation. Yeah, over, over the years, we've we've developed a number of construction standards, and those construction standards uh, required us to have a certain number of uh, equipment out there. So uh, when we talk about type of equipment, you can say a fuse, and those that, that know about fuses, they protect the overhead lines or underground lines, uh, but we, we identify them as expulsion fuses. Those that have been out there, if a fuse operates, it makes a pretty big bang. It sounds like a shotgun that goes out, uh, but it does kind of have an expulsion that happens. So you see a little spark. Well, that spark can obviously ignite and, and cause a fire. So we've replaced whenever we had new construction at the time in the back time in, the, in those in the previous, uh, we would put in uh, certain equipment that will not have that expulsion type. So that's uh, a fuse that we call it's a fault tamer, our current limiting fuses uh, that don't have those um, characteristics in operating. So we've done that. We've changed our our uh, clearances on our poles to make sure that we have op- appropriate clearances for Avian. And so we've we've done a number of those things just to ensure the equipment that's been installed over the years um, doesn't uh, transition into a, a, a fire. And then on the subject of of power poles, you also test the poles on a regular basis to to confirm their integrity and and the lifespan of those poles. Is that right? Yeah, there's a couple of things. We follow uh, the CPUC's uh, GO, general order uh, requirements of inspecting our facilities. And one of the inspections is intrusive inspections where we have to go uh, on a 10 year cycle. We'll, we'll drill through the poles, making sure there's no decay or any issues and even woodpecker damage and cross arms that potentially could be uh, decaying over time. So uh, we, we do that uh, very proactively. Uh, where we have uh, a a contractor come out, help us identify these locations, and if there's any mitigation needed, we'll go out and replace uh, those set equipment. Um, as for kind of some historical stuff, um, about last year we had approximately like 2.5% failure rate of, of the poles, but uh, that's something that we addressed immediately because our focus was to go into, in the previous years, uh, was to hit all those wildfires areas and making sure that that was addressed and we didn't have any equipment that's out there failing. Right. And, and if you had to throw out a, an estimated number, how many power poles would you say TID has in each of these two fire zones? Uh, about 470. Okay. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of poles to check. Yeah, it's a lot of poles, a lot of wire in the air, that's for sure. Definitely. And, and like we said originally, 
these are measures that TID has been taken for years now. That this this isn't these inspections, these um, replacing of of equipment um, that might lead to a spark. That's something that TID has done for decades. Is that right? Yeah. So it's it's you know best best business practices that we've been following and, and ensuring that we met the, the CPUC geo requirements. So uh, yes, this is something that we've been doing for. Uh, decades here at, at this organization uh, to ensure that we we meet all requirements. Okay, so we've talked about the specific equipment. Um, what can you tell us about what TID's vegetation management practices have been? Yeah, so um, in the years we we've taken a very like I said proactive approach. Every fire season, uh, we'll build fire breaks around transmission towers. Uh, we'll actually spray herbicides um, around some of the poles as well. And like I mentioned, we we do the inspections. Inspections will identify if there's any trees, and so we'll annually go out and trim the trees in those areas to ensure we're well prepared for a uh, a wildfire season. And uh, how often, what is the, the schedule, if there is a regular schedule for tree trimming in, in these areas? Yeah, our typical tree trimming cycles is, is approximately three years. But however, we do have those outliers where we, when we do our inspections, we do need to go out and address it. We'll actually send crews out in advance. Uh, so uh, like I said, we, we, take it, we take it very seriously. Uh, to ensure that we we have the appropriate clearances from trees or any other uh, equipment that's out there from our from our lines. All right. So we talked about uh, expulsion fuses. We talked about uh, maintaining the the health or the integrity of our wooden power poles. Um, but we also might occasionally replace a, a wooden pole with a fiberglass pole. Is that right? Yeah, so we, we look at the the areas uh, that have been impacted. So uh, in these areas, you may have, say, woodpecker damage, and uh, we'll just go loop and, and replace everything with a fiberglass pole, even cross arms, to making sure that uh, we don't have any impacts uh, moving forward. And it's a case-by-case case that we'll review to see what it is. Um, and then even though other items, which, you know, we look at it, fiberglass poles and like, it's also conductor. Uh, one of the th- items that uh, we really also focused on and making sure that we hardened our system was to replace, um, and this is a proactive thing that we've done, is replace all our copper conductor. Copper conductor is, is, is great for impacity. It, it handles a lot of load, but it is a weak conductor. So we replaced that with um, uh we call it Acer. It's uh, aluminum conductor, steel supported. Um, and so that's been uh, something that we put out very, uh, I would say last year, we focused to replace a lot of that conductor out there to ensure that we harden our system. All right. So as I had mentioned that uh, in the in the intro, um, utilities are, are under greater scrutiny um, for their wildfire mitigation efforts, um, for preparation efforts in, in preventing wildfire. What was kind of that pivotal moment when uh, when things kind of took more of a spotlight or when things kind of really were called into into question? And and was there legislation that came specifically from that time? Yeah, so that was uh, SB 901 and that was put in place uh, and that was to to address some of those devastating wildfires that um, some of the utilities had to contend with in 2017. And so it really wanted to memorialize what uh, utilities and their practices needed to be to ensure the infrastructure is is maintained and, and it doesn't have any uh, impacts for wildfires. So that was really the catalyst of when the wildfires began and then what utilities can do to ensure that wildfires are not caused by utilities. All right. So SB 901 then um, basically 
required utilities to take the the mitigation efforts that they had currently been practicing. And and as we mentioned, uh, TID had a whole whole long list of of mitigation efforts that we did on a, a regular basis and really formalize those into a wildfire mitigation plan. Is that correct? Yeah. And and, and in that plan, like I said, every utility had to take their practices and, and make it at a standard form that every utility would be measured by uh, a standard practice. So that, that was with the intent of the SB 901 to be uh, implemented. And uh, many utilities uh, had put together their plans and formalized those. They have to go to their respective boards or whatever it may be to get those finalized. And also when they go through that process, they have to have a, a third party um, evaluation done uh, to ensure that they are following uh, what the uh, wildfire advisory board, which was put on from SB 901 uh, to ensure that everybody's following the same practices and they're addressing all the requirements in SB 901. Okay. So it may very well have been the case that some utilities had to increase their standards to meet those that were required. Um, whereas it sounds like TID, because we had opted, opted to take the most stringent of the requirements put upon us as our regular practice, we were really meeting those targets already. Is that right? Yeah, we, we definitely were. We were uh, kind of the head of the game when we put together a lot of our construction standards to address those wildfire areas. Uh, but we, we did take a, a proactive approach in addressing all those while SB 901 was was being implemented to ensure that we didn't skip a beat, making sure that we went back and, and, and reviewed and inspected every uh, facility out there to ensure that we were following every uh, item listed in SB 901. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the the development process that went into formalizing TID's wildfire mitigation plan. What What can you tell us about that? A lot of engagement. That's what it was. Uh, working with uh, the public, uh, collaboration was very key. We collaborated with um, CAL FIRE and worked uh, very heavily with the CPUC fire threat maps. And uh, when I mentioned that we, you know, public engagement, we actually had to have town halls met with um, the communities on both sides of our fire zone. So that's uh, Diablo Grande and LaGrange. We, we worked with each community to ensure that we're informing them of what we're doing, soliciting their feedback. And then, like I mentioned, we worked with CAL FIRE to identify uh, the process that we're taking did follow through with SB 901. Um, but yeah, it was it was uh, a very well put together effort uh, with all because we all want to avoid a wildfire. It doesn't matter who it is and, and what impacts there are. We want to make sure that what we've implemented can can be addressed in those extreme fire risk zones. And I'll also just put in a quick plug here that part of that um, public engagement and that that engagement with the community was giving folks the option to sign up for TID alerts, which is uh, an alert notification system so that if there is a concern in an area or if there is um, an active wildfire in an area, then TID has the opportunity to to send out messaging um, to folks who are signed up for the system. Um, and so if they, any of our listeners would like to sign up for that system, you can find the information on how to do that at the bottom of the homepage at TID.org. And again, the program is called TID Alert. So going back to the wildfire mitigation plan, how often is the plan reviewed and how often is it updated? So it's updated annually, but reviewed uh, every three years and that we have to submit to the Wildfire Advisory Board. Uh, but we, we do uh, meet with our board and, up and provide them the updates uh, annually. 
And then those are submitted to Wildfire Advisory Board. But every three years, it's a comprehensive uh, review. Okay. And I understand that the TID plan was uh, called out in sort of a, a gold star way um, with regard to our, our presentation to the Wildfire Safety Advisory Board. Can, what can you tell us about that? Yeah. So we were, we were asked to participate on a panel uh, with the Wildfire Safety Advisory Board in regards to how the district uh, implemented uh, our territories and how we defined our wildfire zones. Uh, many of the utilities uh, took it to where they just focus on the CPUC high, high fire threat zones, where we took the comprehensive look of both SRA and, and the CPUC high fire threat zones and combined them. So that meant that we went far and above what um, uh, many utilities were working through, but we took it as the best practice. And so uh, expanding our, our wildfire zones are, are going to be helping the community, helping the area that we're taking a much more proactive approach. So uh, when we were asked to be on that panel, we we kind of give them our, our, our input and how we facilitated uh, the changes in our system. Great. Well, congratulations on being recognized for those efforts. That's, yeah, thank you. That's awesome. All right. So as you're taking what TID's practices have been in the way of, of wildfire mitigation previous, previously or prior to SB 901, and you're formalizing those, creating the official wildfire mitigation plan for the district, um, were there any uh, mitigation efforts that you identified that the district decided to enhance or make enhancements in, in certain ways? Yeah, as you're mentioning, we, we definitely focused on addressing the SB 901. Vegetation management was was one of the biggest critical items that we were focusing on. But we looked at others, as you mentioned, and that's such as weather stations. Weather stations will help us understand the conditions in those wildfire zones and then what actions we need to take place to ensure we follow uh, red flag warning days and ensuring that we have the appropriate uh, protection settings on our on our breakers and relays to ensure that we can uh, address those issues. Uh, other things, as I mentioned earlier, was hardening the system. Um, that's something that we've been focusing on uh, pretty heavily. We've we've already addressed some of the hardening there, but we're going to be focusing on what else we could do. And as I mentioned, hardening is replacing conductor copper to that Acer conductor I mentioned to you earlier. Um, one other thing that we're also looking at is much more of a smart grid tech. Uh, looking at fault indicator indicators, uh, more of advanced grid protection is what we're going to be uh, addressing in the near future. Um, grid protection that comes into like uh, smart reclosers. That's kind of a, a breaker that's out in the field. Uh, but those are the type of equipment that we're going to be focused on and, and expanding our, our protection efforts in those fire zones. And and how do having these fault indicators um, and some of the smart grid technology, How what does that mean for the TID employees who are are constantly 24-7 monitoring the system? It's it's essentially data-driven decision-making. And that's what we really need to focus on is, is making sure that our, our field staff is aware of um, what's happening out in the field. So a fault indicator will definitely give them a visual indication that there's wires on the ground and what they could uh, do to address that in a timely fashion. So um, it's mainly the focus of getting the data back, giving us the information to be nimble and make those changes out in the field. Excellent. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about um, 
what happens in the event of a wildfire? You know, we, we've made our best effort to ensure that, um, you know, that number one, that none of our equipment is responsible for um, contributing to the start of a fire. And then also making sure our, our territory is prepared in the event of a wildfire. Um, but should a fire happen in our service territory, what practices then go into place um, or what guidelines do we follow uh, in that situation? Yeah, we've developed a, a comprehensive incident action plan. And that incident action plan defines uh, what roles each department's going to be fa- uh, facilitating through addressing these fires. Um, where are we going to go meet with CAL FIRE? Uh, so we have a pretty comprehensive plan that addresses every action and what department collaboration we need to address these issues. Okay, so now I want to talk about public safety power shutoffs or PSPS. Um, We've heard a lot about them, especially over the last couple fire seasons. Um, And it's something that has affected nearly the entire state of California in, in the last couple years. How does TID define a public safety power shutoff? Yeah, there's there's a whole host of trigger points that define that. And um, for us, we've we've and let me back up here, not just trigger points, but also how does it impact our customers? First and foremost, it it mainly impacts the customers in those tips of our territory. Uh, one thing that we did have issues with, obviously, when everybody's talking about the PSPS, we we're getting calls left and right. Is it going to impact them locally? No, um, it's mainly the, the tips of our territory and those thousand customers that we mentioned. Mm-hmm. But however, the criteria that really focuses on what we were focusing on is um, high wind events. So 56 mile an hour winds, um, ensuring that we have the right conductor there and ensuring that um, basically the poles are not going to fall down. Uh, but it's one of our last resorts to use the PSPS. Uh, we, we are ready to implement if need be, but uh, we, we take pride in ensuring that our equipment is, is, is held to a high standard. Uh, we will ins- we'll send out um, troubleshooters to ensure that if there's a high gust warning for that particular day, uh, that we'll go out and, and review uh, our facilities. Um, there's other trigger points that we have in our control room. Uh, in, in high fires, um, our red flag warning days, we'll change our, change our protection settings to ensure that if, if a fire were to occur um, for any set events, that our system will de-energize immediately. So uh, we take a lot of proactive approaches, uh, but as I mentioned, it's kind of our last resort of a PSPS. Um, we, d- we don't do what some of the other utilities where they're taking a PSPS event uh, in advance and taking kind of those rolling outages uh, for that. Uh, we leave that to, well, let's go put our eyes out there. Let's go take a look at the facilities. And then if we do see a threat to our facilities, then we'll take that approach. Okay. You've mentioned a couple of times red flag days. What what actually defines a red flag day and, and what does that mean to the district? Yeah, so CAL FIRE will identify a red flag warning day as high winds, uh, low humidity, temperature is also one of those. That, that temperature varies, but it's mostly high winds and uh, humidity. So to us, it's, it's very... Um, that's a trigger point, sorry, that what actions we need to take. And it's what our control room does uh, to ensure that uh, the, p- the protection settings are changed and the actions we need to take out in the field. Whenever there's a red flag day, our, our work methods change. So we won't have uh, certain equipment out there. We won't use um, anything that would cause sparks, for example, grinding, anything of that nature. But we also would bring out a water buffalo. 
what, what's a water buffalo? It's basically a water tank um, uh, that we pull behind one of our trucks that uh, we would spray down if need be, uh, even though we won't drive in dry uh, grass or any of that nature. Or if that is the case, we need to get to a certain facility, we'll make sure we have the right equipment out there to do so. So we want to basically uh, ensure that uh, however we address our facilities there is the least impact. Okay. So that red flag warning then kind of triggers that there are a number of those specific conditions that we mentioned early on in the podcast, that those are present and could potentially cause a problem. Yeah. And then that we then take that information and like you said, make changes in our operations to ensure that we're not uh, doing anything that would endanger that or or that we're taking the, the mit- appropriate mitigation efforts. That's correct. Okay. All right. So we, you did mention actually that um, we have our kind of the two tips of our service territory on the on the east and the west that we had identified earlier. Um, that they do have the potential to be affected by PSPS situations. Yeah. Yeah. No. Th- thank you. That's that's one thing I needed to clarify is uh, district wise, like as I mentioned, PSPS for us is one of the last resorts. However. Uh, we do have a set of customers that are part of the Adobe Springs or about 36 customers that are being fed from a, a line from a neighboring utility. And that neighboring utility would probably utilize the PSPS event. So in the event that they do take that approach, uh, it does impact those customers. But we do a, a very good diligent job by utilizing that TID alert that you mentioned earlier uh, to give them the latest information uh, once we receive from that neighboring utility that if they're taking a PSPS event in the next 48 hours, we'll send them a message so they're well prepared. Um, but uh, as I mentioned, it's only a handful of customers uh, that are impacted by that, that are outside of our bounds. Um, but anything in the ter- in our territory, service territory, uh, we'll definitely address it um, by a last resort item. Okay. So 2020, 2020, mind you, had a host of, of issues going on, but that was also the year of the SCU complex fire, um, which did affect part of TID's service territory. Uh, what can you tell us about that incident? Yeah, that was a very devastating fire. Um, as you guys all probably recall, there was ash and smoke everywhere for days. And that was in the month of uh, August that we were had to contend with this fire. So uh, the start of the fire came with from actually lightning strikes and uh, no fault of, of anybody. There were multiple lightning strikes uh, in that particular uh, month that many utilities and uh Cal Fire and fire agencies had to address. Uh, so this one happened to be in our territory. Uh, a number of our facilities were impacted. Um, our customers in the Adobe Spring areas, they were impacted because it also went down to the Santa Clara County line and it kind of came all the way up towards the south end of our of our territory as well, almost up to I-5. Um, but to address that uh, fire, it was, it was a big collaborative event. Uh, we had our, our line department, uh, construction and maintenance, and our uh, safety and emergency preparedness really worked together uh, to ensure that we were addressing this fire in a, in a collaborative approach. And we work with Cal Fire and the county to make sure that we're all in the know, making the right approaches. But um, I mean, hats off went to TID team. They they were able to build fire breaks. Uh, line crews were able to de-energize certain sections of the line, but ensuring that uh, water supply was was protected for the town of Lagrange, or sorry, Diablo. I meant to say. Um, but really, f- and I'm sorry, I'm going to stop you real quick. Can you explain the connection between the water supply and a loss of power? 
Yeah, so uh, there's pumps there that that provides water to uh, Diablo Grande, and the fire was definitely in that trajectory to come in that area. So uh, we didn't want to de-energize that. So we had line department and, and our construction maintenance group go out and build fire breaks and de-energize certain sections of our line to ensure water was there. Um, that if if a fire department needed to come down and in Diablo Grande and utilize their their pumps to get water that it was supplied. So uh, we really went, collaborated with Cal Fire to making sure that we addressed it. But as I mentioned, I mean, hats goes off to the all TID team that that worked day and night to make sure that we were there for the community. And and at the end of the day, um, we actually collaborated with uh, our neighboring utilities too. Um, there was there were a number of days that uh, there was no power uh, to those uh, respected customers. So uh, we worked on getting generators and, and getting that process going. But we also focused on rebuilding our facilities. Uh, there were a number of poles that came down and wired down. And as we were building back up, we looked at opportunities to realign some of the facilities that would have proper access uh, instead of going through some very tough terrain. So it, it gave us, uh, I guess, the positive side of light was to be able to build a, a, an infrastructure, which was much harder than that was built before, but also to be able to give back uh, as soon as we can. So uh, our line department, like I mentioned earlier, they were able to put in these facilities. Um, it wasn't the the best terrain either. It's rock. Uh, you know, it was, it was tough digging. Uh, they all worked um, day and night to make sure that uh, we can get the power back. And and we did it in, in, in great fashion. Lines were up. We were actually waiting for the other side of um, of the facilities to come back. And that's from that neighboring utility to build their f- infrastructure. But um, it was, like I said, a big collaborative uh, support from everybody. Right. And I know the, yeah, as you mentioned, the line crews worked extremely hard to to get the infrastructure back in place um, and were able to do so, which then enabled the neighboring utility to provide a generator um, to pull power from. So we we got the infrastructure there. They provided the generator and we were really able to get those customers back um, re-energized in really short amount of time, all things considered. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and like I said, it, it, was, it was a good collaboration with our neighboring utilities, making sure that, you know, we worked together and getting that uh, generator for those customers. And and they had, I mean, this generator also supplied to other customers too, but mainly for, we our focus was TID and our TID customers. So um, it was, it was, like I said, great collaborations from all across the board. And just a, a quick note there too, that, um, there's more that goes into the restoration process than just putting the poles up, putting the line up and turning the power back on there. There's a, a, a checking process and an ensuring reliability that, that goes on there. Is that right? Yeah. So that, that's with any, any, um, of basically any line that goes out of service, we have to inspect each facility. Uh, it's part of our, our, our lockout tag out procedures that it, before we energize any facility, we inspect it. So that means we run it, run the lines down, keeping our control room uh, well informed that if, if a line is now clear to be energized, uh, that they're in the know because they are the, the operator of our grid. And then uh, the field personnel would, would tra- you know, bring that information back. And, and yeah, it is a process. It goes through uh, a, a big ordeal in regards to depending upon if it's a long terrain, it may take you know, a couple of hours for us to run it through. But um, when we were dealing with the SCU complex fire, uh, we had a couple of, of team members running each section of the line, being on the radios to making sure that we can get that power quickly. And that's a, a safety precaution and one of the utmost important for both the crews working on the on the outage as well as the, the community that they're servicing. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, future, we'll call them opportunities. Um, we know that climate change is happening. We know that it's a, it's affecting, um, you know, our operations here at TID. Um, and part of that is uh, creating that environment for an increased risk of wildfires. Um, what do you see as being changes that we can expect to happen in, in some of these elevated risk areas? Well, the biggest thing is the seasons are getting longer. And that, that puts a lot of impact on what we need to do, not just as TID, but as a community. So uh, climate change has, has definitely impacted uh, the, you know, we say it's, it's getting hotter and, you know, hopefully it gets wetter soon. We haven't had rain come in for a while, but uh, that's one of the things that really has changed is the duration of time for our wildfire seasons. And what sort of impacts does that have on either our mitigation efforts or or TID staff who are implementing these efforts? You know, as I mentioned earlier, and, and when we're discussing consensus, um, we, we take a very proactive approach every season in trimming our trees. So, and then ensuring vegetation is well managed. Um, as as the season gets longer, we have to go out and make sure we inspect again, make sure that if we need to put more herbicides or not. Um, so that would be one of the, the biggest challenges that we have. But uh, overall, it's more so making sure that the inspections are done well in advance of a wildfire uh, season. Okay. And with regard to wildfire season on a on a larger perspective, you know, we're, we're doing what we can to prevent that those situations happening in our service territory. But TID has been impacted by wildfires outside our service territory. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, there's there's a big host of things that we can discuss on that. But uh, in the last podcast that you had with uh, Bill Baca, I know he mentioned about uh, the complexities of our system and where we buy power outside of TID. We actually sell and buy. And uh, when facilities outside of TID are impacted, well, that that hurts our resources. So that's where we can't bring power back in and nor we can actually sell out uh, to to the grid. So, uh, yeah, it, it is very devastating sometimes where, uh, where if there's a wildfire that occurs outside of our service territory, uh, we are significantly impacted where we have to utilize all our generation assets to ensure we meet our load because we can't purchase from, from outside of the district. So it, it, it's, it's something that everybody needs to be cognizant of that wildfires just don't impact the respective utility, but it respects many others. And so we need to make sure that everybody's well informed uh, of how we can do our part uh, to ensure that everybody in our community is, is able to get their, their power for that particular day. Absolutely. And I, it's, you started to tee it up. But TID does its part. But what can the community do to um, take mitigation, wildfire mitigation efforts into their own hands? Yeah. So the individuals, you know, like, for example, that are in those wildfire zones, um, we, we would encourage you to make sure that you have your proper vegetation management. Uh, I'm sure everybody's is very cognizant of it these days because it is very critical that we all know. Uh, so that would be one of the biggest things. Um, the, the other things that we can do uh, other than vegetation management is um, balloons. You know, we all like to celebrate and, and balloons do cause some issues, especially mylar balloons where it can cross phase on a line, sparks happen. And that may cause some some issues. So, and those high fires risk zones or sorry time frames, uh, we just encourage people to just to be cognizant of it. That um, you know, if we're celebrating around those time frames, that uh, ensuring that we don't 
cause any issues in that regard. So my, my only recommendation to, to our community major wise would be is, you know, do your part in your vegetation management. And if there's something where you need support on and there's something that you're uncertain of, give us a call. We'll actually uh, go out, inspect, and, and say if a service needs to be de-energized for you to uh, have have your trees trimmed or anything of that nature, we're more than happy to do so. And so uh, you can contact our service division, and they'll help you support uh, getting you the appropriate resources there. And And that's an important note to make. In a wildfire threat area, not in a wildfire threat area, um, anytime you, you have any tree trimming to do anywhere near power lines, uh, we want to make sure that TID has the opportunity to de-energize those lines so that that can be done safely. So, Absolutely. Thanks for, for calling that out. Okay, we're about to wrap up our time together. Is there anything we haven't yet touched on that, uh, that our listeners need to know about TID's wildfire mitigation efforts? No, I think we we've addressed everything that we're doing. As as I mentioned numerous of times, we've taken a very proactive approach in addressing these wildfire areas and and continue to do so. Uh, and with your support, as for our community, I think um, we'll we'll be able to continue on and and protecting our lines, protecting our community in regards to wildfires. Very good. All right, Manjo, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the TID Water and Power Podcast. You can find TID on Facebook at facebook.com backslash TurlockID, on Instagram and Twitter at TurlockID, and on LinkedIn as the Turlock Irrigation District. I'm your host, Constance Anderson. We'll see you again next time.